At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Today's guest is David Gregory. Hello, David. Hello. And we're going to be doing the uh, five great British horror films. So that's for the people who've not heard this before. That's five British horror films, not surprisingly. Five minutes on each. And every time Edgar Broughton bands shout out, out demons out, we'll swiftly move on to the next one. We'll start with the oldest and we'll move to the newest. That's the format. But before all that, David, do you want to introduce like your kind of credentials, as it were, where you're from in terms of what makes you uh, a horror aficionado? Yeah, I run uh, Severin Films, which is a uh, Blu-ray special edition label which specializes in restoring and remastering and releasing uh, various horror and cult movies on Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. And uh, just recently, we released, for example, the Blood Island box set, all the Mad Doctor of Blood Island movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've released an Amicus box set. We're <laughs> this month we're releasing All the Colors of the Dark and Jack the Ripper, the the British 1959 film. Wow. Upcoming, we've got uh, Blood on Satan's Claw and Beast in the Cellar, which are being restored in 4K. Recently released The Changeling with uh, George C. Scott. Um, but we also do a lot of Italian exploitation, you know, with, uh, uh, Claudio Fragasso and Bruno Mattei movies, Lucio Fulci, uh, Jess Franco, Joe D'Amato. Uh, so we're, we're inundated in, uh, in, in horror and sleaze from the 60s, 70s and 80s. What's, what's the, ma- when you, when you're restoring stuff or making stuff, in, it's not, it's a, I guess making stuff into 4K, I suppose. What, what's, what's the main challenges for sort of your, your late 60s, early 70s type of stuff you might be picking up? Well, the main challenges, particularly on the kind of films we do, is finding an el- a film element which is good enough to actually scan in 4K or 2K. Okay. Uh, you know, sometimes we're relying on a print of a film because that's all there is. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, for example, the, um, uh, the movie House on Straw Hill, which is also known as Expose, the video nasty. Uh, that own, we had the negative for it, but the director had 
kept the negative uh, in his barn in his backyard for for the best part of 40 years so it had been rained on and snowed on and shat on by chickens as far as i could tell and um and basically when we got it, every single frame had a different kind of warping and damage so uh there was only so much you could do with that in order to restore it to make it um good enough for blu-ray but yeah. uh but basically, you know, it was either that or or the film becomes lost. And the only thing that you would have is those old VHSs on, on, on Intervision. So mm. it was still worth scanning and, and making the effort. It just it was not pristine. Of, of, the, of the films you've, 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 you've released so far, which, which one would you consider to be almost like the penny black of films you were trying to put on your roster? Well, uh, I mean, The Changeling was one of them. I mean, that's been out of, of circulation for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my favourites is Santa Sangre, the uh, Jodorowsky movie. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, which is a, a personal favourite of mine. So we've, we put a lot of love into that one. Yeah. Uh, one of them is actually one of my uh, five Brit- favourite British horror movies. So we'll discuss that when we get to it. But cool. uh, but there's a lot of them. I mean, a lot of them we are films that we tracked down because we have you know a personal love or nostalgia hmm. for these films so uh, so it's it's often our own tastes which dictate the films that we pick up now i'm talking to you from london you're in in which part Los of la Angeles. which part of la are you in i'm just by uh, universal studios here in uh, in los angeles just off the 101 freeway now that accent's not local to los angeles is it uh no it's not no i'm from not i'm from nottingham originally so how long have you been out there for uh, 19 years now. Blimey, that's as long as I've been in London. <laughs> there you go. I mean, I, I, I still go back to England a couple of times a year, but, uh, but yeah, but as far as living here full time, I've been here 19 years. Well, look, welcome to Five Great British Horror Films on the Britflix podcast. And without further ado, we shall start in. The clock's ticking and your first choice is 1945's Dead or Night. How did you first come yeah. across that film? Well, I, I imagine I saw it on the, on the BBC or ITV when I was uh, a young lad. But, um, you know, there's any number of great British anthology horror movies, obviously all the Amicus ones and, uh, uh, you know, The Monster Club and The Uncanny and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But Dead of Night um, is particularly is a particularly strong film. And it's also one that has multiple directors. Now, anthology horror movies these days often have multiple directors but Mm. back then they didn't they usually have one director but um but i think one of the things that people when they think of anthology horror movies they always call them a mixed bag because uh you know some stories are better than others whether there's one director or multiple directors Mm. and in the case of dead of night i think the whole film is strong um i I would say the comedy episode by the guy who directed fish called wonder is uh is is probably the weakest but i still liked it when i was a kid i still thought it was you know goofy fun Mm. uh and i think you know everybody agrees obviously that the ventriloquist dummy one is the masterpiece that's the one that they say till the end Mm. Uh, um, but i like all of the stories i mean the first one about room for one more inside with the guy driving the hearse and then it ends up you know being the the conductor of the london bus which then crashes after he doesn't get on the bus i mean all of those stories are terrific and the wraparound story also is 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 a film of its in and of itself. I mean, that's something with anthology films that that sometimes um, differentiates the good from the bad is how good the the story is that holds the whole thing together. Yeah, this this one felt like it was integral as opposed to I get the impression sometimes 
someone's gone right. We've got five films. How are we going to yeah. uh, how are we going to interlink them? Whereas this felt yeah. like it was the journey. It was always the film you were really watching. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and uh, and yeah, and there, there's uh, I think the second episode is is a ghost story. You know, there aren't many, there aren't that many uh, ghost stories from this era either. So uh, so that was you know it's kind of really chilling, haunting ghost story about a a child ghost and a child uh, at a kid's party. Which so so all of the stories have their own kind of uh, a special feeling. You know, I want you. I mean, context wise, obviously, nineteen forty five is the end of the war. Yeah, and it's a fair. I mean, it's a fairly. I mean, it get, when it's scary, it's scary. This film, isn't it? It doesn't pull any punches. Um, it doesn't, and it's funny because there were very few horror movies being made at the time. Hmm. Uh, the, late, the late 40s was the most fallow period for for horror movies in the in the history of cinema, as far hmm. as I'm aware. And uh, and so this was a particularly strong one. And uh, and I think, you know, the year before there was The Uninvited and then the, the early 40s was kind of the tail end of the universal horrors. Mm. And this is like the beginning of really of, of British horror as well. So so I think it kind of holds that uh, as, as an emblem of its uh, of its importance. And as, as a Brit living in L.A. and sort of thinking about and seeing how your, your new peers, as it were, consume horror, what do you think it is that sort of differentiates a a British from a US horror to your mind? Oh, I don't know. I mean, we, we release horror movies from, from all over. So, I mean, I think that the, the, the British ones, you know, they, they, they do have, when you, when you look back at the, the people we interview for the discs and things yeah. like that, people are very kind of proper about, and it's a cliche, obviously, because mm. uh, that's how people look at, you know, English people from, who aren't from England. Mm. Um, but certainly when you talk to people about the Hammer films they were in or the Amicus films they were in, you know, they, they were just kind of, it was as if they were sort of going to a factory, uh, except the, the filmmakers themselves. I'm talking about the, the, the actors and the technicians. I mean, but they were incredibly professional. Every, all the Americans who worked there or talk about how incredibly professional everybody was when they, when they went to the studio, but they were treating it like a job. But then you have the, you know, the key um, creatives behind them, the Terence Fishers and the Roy Ward Bakers and uh, I don't know, the Robert Foosts, people like that. I mean, they, they knew what they were doing. They knew how to make a really tight horror movie. So what do you, what do you think? I mean, this, this, this still gets held up as a, as, a, as a classic piece of horror. It, has, it hasn't lost any of its charm. What, what, what do you think That's- is when it's lasting power? That's right. I mean, well, because it, it's one of the it's one of the key anthology horror movies and anthology horror is is still going strong to this day, particularly multi-director anthology horror. Mm. And I think this is the one that people look back to. I mean, there are earlier examples like they're going back to German expressionism, but this is the one which was really sold as, uh, you know, five chilling tales, basically, which then became a format. <laughs> oh, there's there's like a button, sir. We come to an end on Dead of Night. So, without further ado, moving swiftly and 15 years in advance of when Dead of Night was released, we enter Brides of Dracula, 1960. Do you want to tell us a yeah. bit about how you first watched that one, who you're with? I have to say, I was watching it with my dad on BBC Two right. uh, late at night. I think there's, there's going to be a common theme going through quite a few of these. Um, but... Uh, but I, you know, I obviously watched a lot of Hammer films when I, when I was when I was younger, and I still do actually. But uh, and and I had to think there's got to be, I can't fill the top five with Hammer films, you know. Although mm. there are so many great Hammer 
films. I love Twins of Evil. I love The Nanny. I love the TV show Hammer House of Horror. Um, I love all of the Frankenstein films. I mean, I watched all of the Frankenstein films recently, and they actually, to me, hold up better than the Dracula films. But Brides of Dracula is is just such a unique and beautiful atmospheric film. Hmm. And... Um, I mean, there's there's just so much about it which make it special. The fact that Dracula's not in it for a start, and he's replaced by a very effeminate, blonde-haired uh, lead vampire played by David Peel. Um, there's a, a, there's a scene with uh, the brides themselves. Andre Melly, in particular, is probably one of the sexiest vampires of them all. In the scene where where she comes back and tries to kiss the uh, the lead actress. Um, and then there's the whole kind of weird sort of great expectations build up that the film has with the, with the mother and how the, the house used to be filled with joy. And now because of the uh, illness of the son, uh, she's basically had to kiss all that that goodbye and keep him locked up and away from all her her friends and the visiting dignitaries and stuff like that. And um, what else? Well, obviously, Peter Cushing. I mean, this is one of Peter Cushing's great Van Helsing roles. Uh, you know, he's such a such a cold, cool presence in uh, as Van Helsing. Um, but, he, you know, when he the, when he when he stakes uh, uh, Marita Hunt, that's like I think that was the first time I saw a hammer staking. And it was just like, wow, he just so coldly and calmly went up and blood spurts out. And it's just. It was it was quite something else, and the climax of this film is probably the is probably the coolest thing in in all the history of Hammer, where where Cushing basically uses his uh, you know acrobatics, which he busts out every now and then, and he mm. just jumps on a windmill and forms the shadow of a cross to kill the lead vampire. is just amazing. What's what's your uh, what's your what was your father like as a, as a viewing partner with horrors? You're obviously you're the young impressionable mind. He's the he's the adult guiding you through life. What was uh, what was, what was well, the conversations he... like? He he was the one who first took me to see King Kong, which was my which was my first movie. That's the 1976 King Kong, mm. and so after that, I became monster obsessed, and I would always ask him about the horror movies that he saw, right. and uh, and he'd seen all the all the Hammer films, you know, when when they first opened, and a lot of the Amicus and Vincent Price, uh, the Roger Corman movies as well. So I would always be asking him about that. So when one of the classics was on telly, he'd uh, he'd sit and watch it with me, and he'd he'd laugh. You know, he'd find he'd find them all. Um, he'd he'd see the black comedy in all these movies. Then when video came in, and he was the one who would you know rent the movies for me, and uh, much to my my mother's annoyance. Uh, but uh, he he didn't mind that I was watching them, even though that she did. But he certainly didn't get the you know the the Fulci films and stuff like that. And then in the way that that's that's where my tastes developed once video came in. That was like your punk rock. Yeah, exactly, exactly. There was no way that was going to... And that's also when I, when I sort of realised that, you know, authority wasn't necessarily always telling the truth, of course, when the whole video nasties thing came in and I was only, you know, 10 or 11 and I'd already seen seven, several of them. And I was watching Zombie Creeping Flesh on the telly one day. My dad came in again laughing at the at the at how absurd this movie was. And then I told him what it was. He said, well, this is this is this is illegal. This is a video nasty. And and I was like, yeah, that's look at it. It's it's ridiculous. What what we're being told is not true. Not sure I put it quite that way, but that was certainly (laughs) what I was thinking. (laughs) I had I once had a in the early 80s, once had a Sunday afternoon double bill with me dad watching Life of Brian and Cannibal Holocaust as as a 
as a double bill. That's a, hell of a double fill. That's a hell of a double feature right there. Yeah, exactly. I'm not yeah, sure no, the Alamo will have a program. He also took me to see the Monster Club at, at, at the cinema, which was a very important film for me at the time. You know, when I was eight years old, obviously it's a very hokey movie now, but but then I thought it was fantastic. And that was double billed with the giant spider invasion. So you know, that was a great great day out. And there, there is there is that thing, isn't there, about about how a child sees a horror film that I, you know part of me would like to capture some of that for myself. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's a lot of what. Oh, oh. we can it. pick up we can pick up that thought. Yeah. I was going to say that's a lot of kind of what we do with with Severin. I mean, we're we're, we're you know picking up movies that people saw in a certain era, hmm. and you know, and for a lot of people, it's like watching it again in a better, in a much better format than it was when they first saw it. Uh, and for others, obviously, it's introducing them anew to to these wild and wacky films that uh, that we found so impressionable back then. Right then, moving swiftly along half a decade. To 1965, we come to Mr. Polanski's um, Repulsion, which is, I think, is this his first English language film? It is his first English language film, and he was he was brought to the UK by Compton Films, Tony Tenzer and, and Michael Klinger, who who ran Compton Films, which I think was a cinema club on Old Compton Street, which which showed you know um, sex films uh, in a private club. But I guess they wanted to broaden the kind of films that they were producing. And Polanski had already been nominated for an Oscar at this point. But mm. they had the wherewithal to bring this um, uh, Polish filmmaker. Uh, I think he might have been a French citizen by this time. But still, he, they, they, to bring him over to England, he could barely speak English and just said, we need a horror film. And it's a perfect example of when you get someone who's who's sort of a genius um, and give them just lo a loose parameter like make as a horror film, you can get, you can really strike gold because he obviously made something that was quite different from the, the horror movies that were being made at the time. Uh, I mean, it was contemporary for a start. It's very much a, a swinging London film. Um, and and obviously he also knew his parameters in terms of the budget as well. So him and uh, Gerard Brash, the co-screenwriter, they came up with a, a a film that was more which was mostly shot in one location, which was the apartment where Catherine Deneuve is is trapped. And funnily enough, Polanski now mainly makes films which are mainly one location, and then they were near as interesting as as Repulsion. But obviously he was a young lad trying to uh, you know uh, make a mark. And uh, and it's a film about, uh, you know, somebody who's uh, psychologically scarred. And so it's uh, it had a much more uh, serious tone to it than than, again, a lot of the British horror movies of the time, which were, you know, still kind of in the world of, of gothic horror. It's got um, it's got a weird moral moral sensibility, hasn't it, Repulsion? Yeah, well, it, it it does, because the whole way through, you're thinking, well, this girl's crazy. That's kind of what what we're all sort of led to believe hmm. uh, as the film is going on and she's just striking out and she's striking out with good reason in 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 certain cases because you know the landlord's being lecherous and and being completely inappropriate so he you know he gets his just desserts but the final shot of the um of the photograph of her with the family i mean it just suggests that there's some deep-seated childhood trauma there that uh that has, that has never been explored and the fact that she's just been left to all these uh, aggressors uh, you know her only way to react is to is to strike back i'd love to know what uh, what michael klinger thought 
you know, you know, based on the, you know, let's make us a horror movie, and then he comes back with this, which you know, the fact you well, put we it on inter- your... we interviewed Tony Tenser about it for the for the UK DVD. Yeah, uh, this obviously went when he was still alive. Yeah. Um, uh, and he and he he they didn't really sort of they didn't really sort of get it, but they they knew they were hiring this guy. Mm. For because he's a, a good filmmaker, so it, they didn't try and impose their will on him at all. The only problems they had was the fact that he went over schedule and therefore over budget. But um, but you know they they could tell that they were getting something special, so they they let it happen, which you know was was obviously the right thing to do, and it led to you know this 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 great director having his uh, having his first English language film be an international hit. But I was thinking more like you know in terms of what you you. you what you see and whether you get it. there's one thing to give someone free reign there's another to look at what you get back and and if it, yeah. it doesn't it doesn't sit next to a lot of films in 1965 that comfortably does it that's right that's right and i think and i think they didn't really know what they had i don't i'm not sure whether it was a, a you know a breakaway hit the second they released it i honestly mm. don't know the numbers on that but it was certainly you know the longevity it's a film that still holds up Mm. Now it didn't work out so well on the next film that they did with him on Cul-de-sac, which mm. which Polanski prefers, and a, and you know a lot of people consider a classic as well. But it definitely wasn't a film that that resonated commercially in the same way that Repulsion did. What do you think? What, having worked on the on, on on the DVD release and stuff, what what do you think um, he got right in his direction? Then what what is he what is he able to do with the horror format that maybe others failed to do? Well, I, I mean, he 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 knew. Uh, well, he knew about the performance for for a start. The performance of of the lead actress, the fact that she was vulnerable. Yeah. You know, usually usually the um, uh, you know the aggressor in a in a horror movie is not that is not as vulnerable as that as somebody who you can overpower. Mm. Uh, but the thing is, is he was technologically very uh, very well versed. So him. And- Go on, finish your thought. So him and the DP were able to, you know, use lenses in a way that hadn't been used before as well. So they did a lot of stuff that was very disorientating and and basically made you very uneasy while watching the film. Indeed, indeed. Now we're going to jump into the uh, into the dirty seventies, uh, those murky waters. Now where where we've we've gone, we've we've liberated ourselves from what the sixties were prepping us for, and uh, this is you've picked one here that I didn't know about till till you till you sent your <laughs> list through. So. So uh, do you want to tell, tell the Britflix audience a little bit about I Don't Want to Be Born, or also known as uh, Sharon's Baby? I was, uh, yes, I was also known as The Devil Within Her, and, and I think it's got other titles too, also known as The Monster. Uh, I Don't Want to Be Born is the one that obviously is kind of the, the uh, absurd uh, choice in this list because obviously you know there are films like The Wicker Man and Blood on Satan's Claw and Don't Look Now and which find it any number of, uh, of of great British horror movies which you know are superior films to I Don't Want to Be Born but I Don't Want to Be Born was very important to me it's probably the one on the list that I've seen more than any other mainly because it showed on the ITV late night horror show again it was a TV thing in the UK yeah. um, and I remember they had they had a see every Saturday they'd show a horror film and the um, logo for 
tonight's horror film, they would show uh, they would show two clips from I Don't Want to Be Born. They'd show Joan Collins basically giving birth to the demon baby. And then they'd show this old lady screaming. And they were two kind of like really extreme uh, uh, pained uh, expressions, which introduce you to the fact that a horror movie was about to come up. And on this same season, they also showed Halloween for the first time on TV. So I saw that at the same time wow. and uh, The Uncanny, which I already mentioned. So there were um, there were movies that, you know, made a huge impression on me. But I but I don't want to be born was well, I would I would just watch it again and again and again. And there's something very odd about it. It's generally known as a terrible movie. Right. Okay. <laughs> but but um but I, I never saw it that way because, again, when to, to, to my young mind, this movie was, was terrifying and disturbing. And uh, it's got a great cast. It's got Ralph Bates, Joan Collins, Donald Pleasance, uh, Dame Aileen Atkins, uh, John Steiner's a sleazy strip club owner, Caroline Monroe's a stripper. Uh, Hillary Mason from Don't Look Now, the blind woman from Don't Look Now, she's in it as as a really mean nanny uh, who who ends up getting a dead mouse in her tea. Um, I mean, there's so many just just and, and it's and it seems to be just kind of one set piece after the other. At least that's how I remember it. There was just so many uh, so many uh, disturbing murders and 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 the whole thing is basically about a se- sexually frustrated little person at the strip club called Hercules who basically has a crush on Joan Collins before she gets married and she rejects him. And then he somehow managed to plant a seed in her belly, which is his demon baby. And wow. and basically Ralph Bates thinks it's his baby, but uh, the baby ends up, you know, killing lots of people. But it's just a cute little cuddly baby. But occasionally you see the face of the little person and it shows up in, in the garden and in trees and stuff like that. It's really very bizarre. It's got a very bizarre soundtrack as well, which is fantastic. It's directed by Peter Sasdy, who did Hands of the Ripper and Taste the Blood of Dracula. And it's... Uh, Stone, and it's I, was, also, I was just looking through. Stone Tate, Dudes, yeah. Doom Watch. It's, uh, I mean, yeah. it's got some incredible, pe- got some incredible pedigree, and it's also another film which is very representative of London at the time. I mean, yeah. it's got it's got all this kind of Soho strip club vibe going to it as well, and all the fashions of London in the seventies. I mean, it made made a huge impression on me. And 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 what 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 do you make it? What is Joan Collins' performance one of the reasons it's it's good, or because it's or one of the reasons it might be bad? Oh no, she's really good in it. She mm. she really goes for it. She's taking it very seriously. I mean, I think she was uh, she was you know she was going for it as an actress at the time. I guess it's is it around the time she did the stud and the bitch. I don't know what years they came out, but this was 1975. So so anyway, Joan Collins was you know becoming Joan Collins at that time, and you know. Uh, uh, Donald Pleasance is fantastic. Alien Atkins. It's uh, you know the cast is absolutely impeccable. So uh, I mean I think I think they probably all are a bit sort of dumbfounded and looking scared at this baby and 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 things like that. And, and Carolyn Monroe's dubbed for some reason, which made also gave it kind of this this weird feeling whenever she's on screen. Um, so yeah, but uh, what, I don't know. What's I will the stand up for this movie? What's the um... What, 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 if any, is the influence of something like Rosemary's Baby, which, you know, on the face of it, I've well, not seen it. Just, just because it's a demon baby. I mean, the baby is actually born at the beginning of this film. Right. Uh, and, doesn't, and doesn't want to be. It starts with uh, Floella Benjamin from, was she on Play School? She uh, was, she yes. Be- <laughs> she's, she's, she's basically delivering the baby. And... Uh, 
And Donald Pleasance says, this one doesn't want to be born. And, uh, and then it comes out making all kinds of noise. And then they're, they're, they're but they can, they the, 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 Go on, finish your thought, sorry. The alternate title of Sharon's Baby makes no sense because the character that Joan Collins plays is called Lucy, but that's that's that. <laughs> ah, okay, okay. Right then, we're on to your final choice and you, you're dragging us cricking and screaming to the, uh, ironically, the year of the video recording, Act 1984, yeah. <clears throat> with um, the, the true TV horror movie of certainly my childhood as well, um, the, <laughs> the pre-apocalyptic Threads. Um, yeah, it's a it's a it's 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 a great choice, and for those people listening who aren't who aren't from uh, from Britain, obviously Threads was a was a huge, the culturally significant thing, wasn't it, in nineteen eighty four? So, do you, do you want to talk about watching it and and, and maybe how old I, you I were? Do, yeah, and, it, and just for full disclosure, this is the one that we've put out on on my label here, but it, it took me over ten years to track down the rights. It was not owned by BBC in the in the US. It is okay. everywhere, uh, but I desperately wanted to put this film out on on well then dvd but now blu-ray mm. and finally was able to untangle the rights and again it's it's still disturbing people we've showed it in cinemas here it's disturbing the hardcore horror audience it's it, the movie still retains its power and you have to imagine in 1984 when we we're at the height of you know thatcher and reagan's uh um fear about uh, nuclear war um we were already terrified that that the bombs were going to drop and what was going to happen. I remember seeing the day after, which was the American film, which came out just before Threads, and finding that utterly terrifying because we didn't know what was what was going to happen at the threat of nuclear bombs. But then when Threads hit, um, my God, I mean, people were traumatized for for days, maybe even weeks after it aired on the BBC. Some people didn't want to talk about it because it was too horrific. Uh, David, but, but, uh, when when it was when it aired in Britain. Um, I I took my mother aside and said to her and asked her whether there was going to be nuclear war. Yeah. To which she said, "No, there won't. We'll be all right." And that was enough. It was. <laughs> oh, okay. I wish I, wish I could. You're... I wish I could get the same conversation off Brexit from her. <laughs> well, indeed. Uh, yeah, but I mean, but she might have been saying that just because she didn't want you staying awake at night and and, and freaking out. I mean, I remember I would lie awake at night thinking about the stuff that's in threads you know they're mm. they're the, the having to eat rats to survive they all the the scars on people's faces the you know the the unclean air the the burning cats i mean there's just so much that is disturbing in this film the fact that language disappears over time um i mean we talk, yeah. i remember as kids talking about how you would survive because obviously there's there was all the in support of this was all the other public information stuff. Yeah, about and that, which was absurd, which inspired a lot of threads. I mean, putting a mattress against the window to deflect the black <laughs> was, was was insane, you know. And that's why they have that in the movie just to show you that that will do you no good when when the blast happens. I mean, the the director Mick Jackson did a lot of research. He actually did a QED episode called "How to Survive a Nuclear Blast" or something mm. like that. 
and you can get it on YouTube. We weren't able to get it for the Blu-ray because BBC wanted too much money. They wanted more than we paid for threads. Um, but basically, you can watch it on YouTube, but it's also kind of, it's well-researched, and it also just shows you how absurd those pamphlets were about what you're supposed to do during uh, after a nuclear blast. There is nothing you can do, and society will deteriorate. And that was something that was different from the day after, where as grim as it was, people did sort of come together as a community in the end and, and sort of give you the sense that they would rebuild. Whereas in Threads, there is nothing like that. There is absolutely no hope. It goes 10 years into the future and everything is just falling apart. What, what can people get on the Blu-ray then in addition to the film? What's... So there's a, a commentary with Mick Jackson. There's interviews with Karen Meager, the lead actress. There's an interview with the DP, the production designer, and... Um, and the restored version of the film. So, and I believe it's just come out in the UK as well on mm. on, on the right. So, uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's definitely worth revisiting if you if you want to relive that most disturbing time in the eighties. Well, it's it's sort of yeah, it's kind of ironic when you know your lovely president over there is throwing his yeah. tariffs around left, right, and centre. Um, yeah destabilizing very stable parts of the world yeah no it's very it's very similar i mean mick jackson was saying at the screening we had here that he thought that this would now just be a nostalgia piece by this point like that the whole the whole thing had blown over so to speak um but now of course we're talking about you know we're, we're you know the threat of uh you know, threats from the outside and things like that. And even discussions about uh, nuclear power, you know, um, how could we get ourselves back to this position where the, where this kind of devastation can happen at the, at the push of a button. But, you know, that's what people in power do. <laughs> how, how do you think at the time he got such, such a long lead in terms of how far he could take the horror? Cause it's, it's unapologetic, isn't it? Threats. It absolutely is, and it's surprising. It's credit to the BBC that uh, that that they went for it, but apparently they uh, they were embarrassed that they didn't air the War Game, which was made um, in the sixties, mm, uh, and they right, didn't yeah. air the War Game apparently because they thought there would be mass suicides because of uh, the threat of nuclear war, mm. and they were kind of ashamed about that. And so I think they allowed Mick Jackson and his and his team. It was written by Barry Hines, by the way, who wrote Kess, mm. um, and um, uh, that they allowed him to just go for it, you know. And I suppose. You know, it, it went further than than any TV movie that I can remember in terms of just its graphic depictions of you know puking. And... Go on, then finish your thoughts, right? Yeah, it just it, it's graphic depiction of 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 everything, like the hospital scene with the blood and the dirt and the oh yeah, it's it's a really disturbing movie. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 sort of it's the ultimate disaster movie, which then makes it into a complete and utter. Um, real and existential crisis movie which is perfect yeah. horror really in many senses it is it is and the fact that there is just no hope uh so it's not something that really should be considered for for an option <laughs> and i <laughs> and i think if i remember right it was it was first brought it was like a sunday evening wasn't it it's first broadcast. it was and it was on bbc2 originally they didn't dare air it on bbc1 <laughs> it was on bbc2 but enough people watched it and you know if you remember it went you, you know it's like 10 days since the blast two yeah, weeks yeah. since Ten years, you know, and a lot of people I remember in school the next day were like, I only made it three days past the blast. You know, you did it by the amount of days that you could make it through the movie. A lot of people didn't make it to the end. Do you know, I forgot that. Do you think, I mean, just, just as an aside, do you think that um, uh, Krasinski uh, with uh, Quiet Place was thinking of Threads? 
Oh, quite possibly. Quite you, possibly. You know, because they do that. The film starts, doesn't it? It goes, it's like 200 days after the That's shit. That's right. The shit That's right. It's it, interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, no, no, I don't. No, no. Good you bring it up. Well, look, sir, that's your five great British horror films, and it was brilliant, and, and I'm really glad you brought me uh, I Don't Want to Be Born, because... As, <laughs> well, uh, now I'm worried, because you'll watch it, you'll be like, I don't know what the hell he's talking about. But... No, no, that's not... That, that won't be the case, though. No, I did this... I, the idea for this show, for a podcast, was so... I, on a selfish front, so I could get films that I didn't... If you're not aware of something, you never are. And when yeah. somebody comes to you with the enthusiasm you did, and other people have on the show when they've come on, is... It's like, yeah, there's a, a cultural corner I've not been in yet, so I want to go. Yep. <laughs> yep, well, I'm telling you, to people of a certain age, watching on ITV, the horror the horror movie on Saturday night, that movie made an impression. And it was it was aired the week after Halloween, and I thought, wow, these are the two greatest horror movies ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, you, you, you met in the beginning, just before we go, I mean, actually thinking about it, um, what would you, now, nothing springs to mind off the top of my head. Having talked about them, because often there's a there's a theme running through the five, but I don't I don't know whether I could whether I could fix myself down or apart from obviously except you, that I saw them all on 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 television in the UK. I think yeah. that that seems to be the seems to be the the key thing that was that uh, that I got my uh, horror education from the BBC and ITV. Yeah, which is kind of like if you think if you think of like a you know twelve to fifteen year old now living in a house where they might have access to Amazon, iPlayer. And, and Netflix just alone. Never mind what what physical media they might have access to as well. Um, you kind of got there's there's sort of you, you, you're overwhelmed by choice as opposed to like you just described Halloween one week. <laughs> I don't want to be yeah, on the exactly. next. Exactly. I'm, I'm checking. I'm checking the paper. I'm checking the Radio Times every week to see. And then some weeks there'd be nothing. You know, and it was just so gutting. And then every now and then there'd be two. But most of the time it was just maybe you would get one horror movie somewhere on, on one of the four channels or, or, or three channels initially. But, uh, you know, that's that was the only outlet somebody of my age had to watch horror movies. And because of, you know, that uh, obsession after seeing King Kong, I had, you know, the Dennis Gifford history of horror movies. I had the Alan Frank books so I could look at the pictures. I had the, the House of Hammer magazine. You know, I could read all about them. But to actually see them, I had to wait until they aired on the telly. Hey, you see that? But you see, it's almost like that kind of random curation of what you accumulated, which then obviously... Peak to curiosity, which then, I guess, once the video tape was available as well, like you go in shops and you know, video shops, you sort of go, "Whoa!" Yeah, no, it was a whole new world. It was a whole new world of, of just entertainment and just you know stuff that wasn't covered in those aforementioned books. Mm. It was like it, you rely on the pictures on the cover in that case, and that's why those boxes were often so lurid, and they were the ones that I wanted to see. You know, I also saw Cannibal Holocaust on tape at a at a too young age, uh, but the, oh, the I cover was far too young. Was fantastic, <laughs> and I thought it was great. You know, <laughs> I mean, it was very it was very cut, but uh, but you know, I thought, wow, I certainly haven't seen anything like this. Well, look, before you go, it'd be remiss, cause given, given it's been such a popular choice with other guests, is, is there much you can preview in terms of what people were going to get with the blood on Satan's claw uh, that you, you're going to issue? We are working on a documentary about folk horror, which is a, you know, a term that seems to have now 
uh, it's been around for a while, but now seems to be something that's kind of entered popular culture mm. as a type of horror movie. And the big three are, of course, Blood on Saints, Claw, Wicker Man, and Witchfinder General. But there's a lot more in the in 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 the history of British horror uh, as far as folk horror goes. So we've got a documentary about that going on the disc. We just did an inter- a new interview with Piers Haggard, the director. We've got various other bits and bobs, but the film is being restored in 4K and uh, transferred from the original negative. And uh, we're also doing Beast in the Cellar, another Tygon film that was made at the same time. Um, so uh, they'll be coming up later this year. I love the fact that Blood and Satan's Claw being an absolute period horror movie, given it was made in 71, is also a hippie movie. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah, it's uh, and and it also has you know again one of one of the great central characters in in British horror in Angel Blake played by uh, Linda Hayden. Mm. Uh, she, she will also be on the disc as well. So I mean I think that I think that's just what that's also you know I mean it seems silly that I would choose I don't want to be born over blood on Satan's not at all no that over just because of what it what it meant to me you know <laughs> no totally no I'm, I'm grateful to do a bit of a bit of bonus content on the podcast to be honest with you so no worries there always a pleasure to talk about blood and satan's claw well look yeah. it only gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the podcast my pleasure thank you very much for having me the britflix podcast is provided absolutely free if you want to help me get the podcast out to more people please take a moment to leave a review on itunes Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina.